This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This message uh, is called Unapproachable Light. Really cool title. I, I like it. Now, I didn't come up with... Uh, the term unapproachable light. That was a translator uh, from the Greek into uh, the New Testament, the words of Paul writing to Timothy. Uh, the, the subtitle is A Study in How Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. And at first, those two don't seem to uh, make a lot of sense together. What does unapproachable light have to do with the topic of mercy and judgment? And uh, that'll make sense as we progress. But when we just start with the idea of unapproachable light, let me at least read you the scripture that Paul's speaking. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are we talking about? Well, Jesus Christ. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Jehovah God, the unseen one, has made himself manifest in and through the Son, But this is, in a sense, a tribute to that unseen one, that one that Jesus Christ reveals, and who alone has immortality dwelling in a place that is unapproachable. And that's going to be very, very important in the message as we unfurl it today. Uh, I remember uh, when I was young, my dad was a big sports fan, and, you know, his heroes were of a different era, you know, so if I started mentioning his, the guys that he loved watching, he lived in Chicago, Gail Sayers, Dick Butkus, and then if I were to mention basketball players, David Thompson, some of you are like, who are those people? And yet, that was the old school, uh, and, you know, my dad would still say that they're better than the, the new players, even though I don't know if that could be proved. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're an old school sports fan, you still always think the old stuff is better than the new. And uh, David Thompson was uh, a basketball player, he played for the Denver Nuggets, and uh, he was a specimen. He was one of the most extraordinary athletes uh, of his day. And he could stick a, in fact, he could jump up and stick a quarter on top of the basketball backboard. Then he could jump up and grab that quarter off. Uh, okay, that's what we call unapproachable athleticism. <laughs> if, if we were to call you and say, stand in line, all right, you're next you would likely be unable to match such a feat. Uh, you know, there's also, I, I remember when I was in uh, college, I came home and, on break, and my parents, my brother was in some youth group in a church down the road, and they had the world's strongest man. I guess he had the best bench press. It was in the 700s, okay? And I was, like, very intrigued by that, so I joined my brother for a youth group. That day, that uh, Sunday morning, I just wanted to see this guy. I wanted to see what he looked like. He was, I mean, his arms were as big as my torso. I mean, it was ridiculous. And he was a Christian, so he was like talking about, I don't know that it was very edifying. You know, like it brought me closer to Jesus, but it did bring me closer to the fact that I am not like him. That is unapproachable strength. 
And so what you see in those two illustrations pales next to what we're actually talking about. Because a lot of us have the notion that Jesus came down, grabbed a quarter from the top of the backboard, bench pressed over 700 pounds and said, now you follow. And we're like, oh boy, if I just work hard enough, if I can just get in the gym enough, if I can just exercise enough, just work on my, you know, my jumps, you know, work with uh, Coach Vogel you know, in the core and he'll get me jumping higher and higher and higher. And I can one day reach this echelon of perfection, this light. And yet, what I'm going to introduce you today truly is unapproachable. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you discipline yourself, no matter how much you give up, no matter how much you sacrifice, no matter how much you sweat and cry, you could never reach it. It is truly the definition of unapproachable. And that should cause you to quake in the depths of your being. Because unless you can approach it, you have no life. So when you see that chasm between you and God, it actually causes good news to make sense. When you think that chasm is just a mere measurement or a distance of your givenness and your willpower and your grit and your determination, you don't appreciate the gospel. You actually appreciate what you can bring to the table. God needs to bring us to the empty pocket state. We finally recognize, I could never do that. He goes, now you're getting warm. Because, I mean, I'll just give you the illustration. We'll we'll go through this. The unapproachable in the Greek, aprositos. So uh, let's break that word down. The makeup of aprositos. Alpha is the A sound or the A sound in this. And it simply means a negative of something. So it's the negation of something. So when you stick the A in the Greek in front of, or the alpha, in front of a word, it removes whatever that word is trying to say. So the the second part is pros, which is to come near something to approach a thing or position. So you put those two together, aprositas, and what you have is the inability to come near to something. The inability to reach something, unable to gain, unable to approach. And so that's what the concept is. The light no man can reach. So now, very simply put, I'm going to introduce you to God Almighty, Jehovah, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is called the light of the world. However, Jehovah God, the unseen God the one who sits enthroned, the one that Jesus represents to us and reveals to us, he is the light that no man can reach. Unless you were like him, perfectly righteous, without spot, without blemish, without failure of any sort, even a failed thought, even a selfish glance, it doesn't matter. Unless you are perfect and like him, you could never be where he is. Heaven and the measurement of light. Oh, it was over a year ago I was teaching on light, and I, I did a study on light. I'm so intrigued by this. I mean, it's just so fascinating to me because I was studying the universe. If you ever just want to study something that leaves you gaping with awe, just study the size of our universe. Study things like light. It's just, we take them for granted. I mean, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's nice. Well, then you start studying it, and you're like, whoa. Heaven and the measurement of light. Because the the name Jehovah in the Old Testament would be the ineffable or unspeakable name to the Jews. The Jews, in fact, no one actually knows how to speak what are called the four letters. 
The name of God, the proper name of God was given to Moses at the burning bush. But then in the Ten Commandments, God says, hey, do not take the name of the Lord, which is Jehovah, this unspeakable name, in vain. And so God makes it very clear as part of his moral law, do not mishandle this name. And so the Jews put multiple barriers between them and the speaking of that name, lest they mishandle it. Lest they actually uh, blaspheme God is the term. You see, we create euphemisms to guard against blasphemisms. Okay, that's, I just made up the word blasphemisms. But just to try and give you an idea, euphemism is like daddy. Okay, you say daddy. My kids say daddy. They call me daddy. Now, my name is actually Eric. But my kids call me daddy. Why? It's a euphemism to show respect. They distance themselves from my actual proper name, and they call me daddy to show respect. Well, the Jews called God Jehovah, Yahweh, as a way of distancing themselves from actually speaking his proper name. So what we have is another way of describing Jehovah was the place Jehovah lived in this unapproachable light. Lest they use the name of God to even describe where he is, they called it the heavens. And even the heavens were a term of his person. The unspeakable name. That's where he is. Who's he? Uh, You know, like the one that we would never say his name. You know, the one that created the heavens and the earth. The light. The heavenly. So we're down here in this earth. But he, he inhabits the heavens. So heaven and the measurement of light. So... The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's not per hour. That's per second. That's a, that's a lot of distance there that light can go in a second. So at that speed, Earth can be traveled around at the speed of light 7.5 times per second. The entire Earth. <laughs> And I'm way too slow. Do you see what I just said? I was just going around in a circle like that, and I was slower than light going around the earth 7.5 times per second. Whoa. To get to the moon, light would take one second. Obviously, if you're good with your math, I could say, so how far away is the earth from the moon? Well, it must be 186,000 miles. (laughs) To get to the sun, light would take eight minutes. Isn't that an amazing thought that it takes eight minutes to get from the sun here, and yet that's... That's a long period of time. Uh, That's a good distance. Eight minutes. I mean, moving that fast takes eight minutes? To get to the nearest star system, which is called Alpha Centauri, light would take four years. This same light that could travel around the Earth 7.5 times in one second would take four years to get to the nearest star system. Four years! I mean, that's, that's distance. Wow! To get to the nearest galaxy, the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy, light would take 25,000 years. This is light. Yeah, the same light that went around the Earth 7.5 times in one second would take 25,000 years to get to the nearest galaxy, which is merely a dwarf galaxy, mind you. So let's get some perspective. Adam... He shows up onto Earth, and he boards a vehicle moving at the speed of light at the dawn of Earth's creation. He would now be 25% of the way to the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy right now, moving at the speed of light, and he would still have 19,000 years remaining. Can you say with me, unapproachable light? To get to the very edges of the nearest major galaxy. So this is the first major galaxy. I mean, this, 
Ridiculous Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy. It's like, come on, guys. That doesn't even count. Where's the nearest galaxy like ours? Come on, give me one of those to get to the very edges. This is just to the edge of the next nearest major galaxy, which is the Andromeda Galaxy. Light would take 2.5 million years. (laughs) See, I don't think it's sinking in. Okay, now, this is the one that blows me away more than anything else. That's just the edge. The way I want you to look at it, the edge of the nearest major galaxy is going to take 2.5 million years. Now you've reached the edge. It is estimated that there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. Unapproachable light. How are we doing? You can get in your little speed of light, you know, speed craft, and get going. It's like, I'll get to God. Good luck. This is so far beyond anything we could ever comprehend. And God inhabits that. You want to be where God is. There's a gulf between you and him. So the way I'm going to liken grace is I'm going to liken it to the unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies. Now, just for a second, I want you to pause just for a second and ponder something. Most of us have really struggled because we want the things of this earth. The dust of this earth has a strange attraction to us. And we have compromised to gain the pleasures and to gain the dust of this earth. We have compromised when God says, I would like to give you myself all that I possess. You know, if you were to just take a mile, square mile of like Windsor, and you were to measure the value of how much that is worth and how much, I mean, just here in Northern Colorado, we've got some serious oil, right? There's a lot of value to a square mile. And you could imagine just taking a square mile of this. Most of us would, I mean, it would be enough to sustain us. It would be, I mean, it would be so much. Just one square mile of this earth has riches untold. Imagine the type of houses. You could have a hundred, maybe a thousand houses all over the world, some of the most beautiful, gaudy ones, if you just owned a, a square mile in Windsor, Colorado, and then sold it off. The wealth of this world is tremendous. And that's one square mile of a diddly squat earth. And God says, you forsake that. Would you be willing to give that up to get what I would like to give you? What does God have? Just imagine in this galaxy that God, just that we are in, is nothing compared to the 200 billion that God possesses. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. And we crave the dust of this earth when God is saying, enter into me and share in my inheritance. Oh, some perspective, please. You see, grace is what we have lost At the fall of man, we exited our habitation. We lost our access to the light, and we ended up in darkness. The perfect course. The course of the stars is perfect, predictable, always the same. It speaks the same message always. It declares the glory of God. So when you study the stars, from what I understand, now I'm not an expert on stars, But from what I understand, 
The stars are always the same, and in the same place, seasonally, and you could actually predictably know what the star system and what it would have looked like standing on one set spot in the world and trace it back even thousands of years and know exactly what they would have been looking at in the sky that night. Like, exactly. That's amazing. In other words, this is always the same. The stars in the heavenly, heavenlies reveal God's nature, which never changes. Fallen from grace. You ever heard that term? Well, you see, there is a falling from grace that has taken place. Stars are likened, I mean, we're likened to stars, actually. The descendants of Isaac would be as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heavens, which means multitudinous. But still, there's a likening to the descendants of those that believe to stars. And also, authorities are likened to stars. So, for instance... Lucifer and the angels that fell, they were likened unto stars that were removed from the course. They were in the heavenlies, but then fell from that position of grace. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, speaking to one known as Lucifer. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. So what we see is a disturbance in the heavenlies. We see a star that is unwilling to submit to the always the sameness of God, to his majesty, to his superiority. And he desires to exalt himself, as ridiculous as that is, above God and God's light. So it says in Revelation 12, which is quite a unique little segment of the Bible, Revelation, but it uses a lot of terminology that fits with the heavenlies. The red dragon's tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, capital C, as soon as it was born. So what we see is a picture of this Messiah, this seed that is prophesied. We see the rebellion of Satan in this and that these stars, they were likened unto stars that came and were removed from their place. A star, once it has fallen, just follow me on this, has no ability to restore itself. And so the law of the heavens is pretty clear, the law of the stars. Once a star falls, what happens with it? It turns to nothing but flame. It is lost. It is gone. And so the law of the heavens is once you fail, once you fall from that perfect order, there is no hope of recovery. Introducing the trash bin. I'm going to also describe it as the hollow or the empty dark space. In Scripture, there are multiple hollows, uh, caves, uh, and that'll make sense as we go along here. But I'm going to introduce you to something that could sometimes be difficult to understand, and that is we have this bad guy known as Lucifer who fell from grace, and with him he took a third of the angels, and with him he took us. In other words, what has happened when he was baiting Adam and Eve, he knew the law of the stars. He knew the position of the heavenlies. He knows the nature of God. And so one subtle compromise was enough to have us join him. And so what we seem to see is, let's imagine that this is God's house. God's house is marked by God's nature. So if we were to take a tour of the temple in heaven, and we all got on a bus and, and flew up there for the day. And, 
You know, the tour guide walks us in. What are we going to see? Are we going to see junk? Are we going to see trash? Are we going to see banana peels? Uh, are we going to, you know, be like, oh, boy, it really smells up here. What are you going to see? You're going to see perfection. You're going to see the nature of God. You're going to see the beauty of God. You're going to see the order of God. You're going to smell the smell of God, the fragrance of God, which is perfectly perfect. You see, he keeps his house well. Well, I'm guessing some of you keep your house well, and as a result, you have something known as a trash can. Now, if I came to your house, and the the one thing I look at is your trash can, and I evaluated you by your trash can, I'm like, look at the stuff they put in here. This is like trash. You keep trash in your house. That would be an unfair assessment of the nature of your house because the reason it is in the trash can is because it does not bear the nature of your house. The reason it's in the trash can is because it has violated the nature of your house. Once you peel a banana and you take the the good stuff out and you have a peel, this peel no longer is part of the nature of your house. This needs to go somewhere. If you throw it on your floor, then suddenly you have violated the house because this house is orderly, it is clean. And so what do you do with it? You stick it in a domain in your house. It is in your house, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't bear the nature of your house. It is segmented off. It is a hollow inside your house, the trash can. And as a result, you stick what does not bear the same nature of your house in a place called darkness. This is exactly how God has functioned. In other words, does he inhabit all of his creation? Yes, He is everywhere. However, there is a part of his creation that he has cut out, that he has clipped away, that he has actually designated as a place where darkness will dwell. And that which is opposite his nature goes there. Uh Uh-oh. That's where we come in. You see, we have violated his house. We have become of an opposite nature to the house He didn't create us for that, but that is what has happened. And as a result, we are now also in the trash can. And soon that trash will be taken out into into an eternal darkness and burned in the incinerator. We got issues. Finding ourselves in the trash bin. Well, that's basically what God is about in the scriptures. He's, all these people are going around, you know, enjoying life and enjoying the pleasures of this world, not having any idea that what they're eating is dust. What they're investing their life in has, no, has only temporal satisfaction, but no lasting. And they are eternally cut off from the God who is unapproachable light. We don't even see it. We don't even know it. Unless God himself intervenes in our life and awakens us and says, there's more. There's more. Do you recognize that you are cut off? God, I see light, but I can't approach that light. You see, that's actually what the word of God intends to do. It intends to show you light and then to show you, I know this sounds rude, how unapproachable it is. He wants to show you that you are not like him. That sounds mean. No, no, it's anything but. Because unless you recognize that there is something that is cutting you off from his presence that is making this chasm unapproachable. Unless you understand that, you will not receive his mercy when he extends it. A sick man, unless he knows he's sick, will not receive the doctor's help. Unless you know your need, you will not say yes to his helping hand. As by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread 
to all men because all sinned. The devil is the chief of the trash can. He's called the prince of darkness. I don't think it's really something to boast about. Could you imagine boasting that you're the prince of the trash can? If I was him, I'd keep that under wraps. However, that is his domain. And anything that enters into it, he is prince over it. Which is why you have found yourself under the thumb of a behavior that you have no interest in doing. You need a new prince. You need to be set free from that trash can. However, someone in the trash can cannot set themselves free from a trash can any more than a banana peel at the very bottom of a trash bag can climb its way out. You're in trouble. So am I. The severity of the separation. William Booth, and this is a paraphrase. I wish I could get the actual quote. If I could, to finish my training of disciples right, I would hang them over the fires of hell for a day and let them hear the screams. That would surely ready them to win souls. You see, unless you know the severity of being in that trash can, you do not crave to get out. And if you are out, unless you remember the severity of that trash can, you will not labor along with God to help others get out. It's weird how we have such a diminishment in our eyes and in our minds and our understanding of how serious of an issue this is. God has given up everything that he has to give to get us out of that trash can. We need to recognize that if this is literally worthy of the blood of God to shed his very life, to give it up, to redeem us. This is pretty serious. So remember I talked about hollows? Like the trash can is like a hollow. It's a space within our house that doesn't bear the same nature as our house. It's still in God's creation. And he separated that light from that darkness. He understands what darkness is. He's not blind to it. And he recognizes that it does not bear his nature. So... So it is true also in how he has designated a place for that judgment, for that banana peel behavior. So we're going to call it the hollows of hell. Most of us know that when someone that does not know Christ dies, we say they go to hell, which is a correct statement. However, more specifically, there's actually different hollows. There's different prison cells. I know it sounds strange that are described in Scripture. I'm not going through that in depth, but you can look into it. Tartarus, for instance, a place for the fallen angels. Sheol, Abraham's bosom is referenced. I'll actually read the, uh, the story in which that is referenced, which is odd. It was Jesus talking about it, which validates it, obviously. Hades, which we typically translate as hell, but it's a very specific place called Hades. The abyss and the lake of fire. Technically, all differing locations, even though... They're all in this one zone, which most people would say in their study of Scripture, it's in the earth, internally in this very uh, earth. The sobering description of this tomb. So it's interesting, there's another hollow that we see in Scripture, and it would be a tomb. And a tomb is a place where death reigns. It just is. And that's where uh, death is consummated. I mean, it's like the official statement. They're in a tomb. Stone rolled in front. How, just as a banana peel at the bottom of a trash bag is not going to be able to climb out on its own, any more can a dead man get out of a tomb. You see, a dead man is, by definition, dead. And therefore, I don't know if you've ever seen a dead man knock over a, you know, a, a big, huge stone in front of a, a wall, in front of a 
uh, a tomb that is sealed even. In other words, that just doesn't happen. Dead means you have no ability to do the things of life. And so as a result, there is a sobering description of this tomb in the earth. And in scripture, it goes into uncomfortable detail about what awaits those of us that do not receive the mercy of our creator. This tomb and the pains and the sufferings in it are everlasting, never-ending, unanesthetized, which means there's no pain-killing agent available in this location, in this tomb, ever-conscious torment, pain, and suffering. You can't knock yourself out. You can't take a pill. You can't, you know, if you're tortured in this life, I've studied things like this. I don't know why I study things like this, but I've studied the martyrs and those that have given their life for Jesus. But at a certain point in suffering and torture, you actually just pass out. And so the torturers always try and minimize so that they don't lose your consciousness. In hell, there's no way to pass out. What we are talking about here is so severe and so uncomfortable. Some of you are like, I did not expect this today. Unapproachable light sounds like such a nice message. This is what needs to be understood in the depths of our being. Remember what William Booth said? If I could finish up my discipleship of my students properly, I'd hang them over hell for a day and let them hear the screams. Take it in. Take it in. Do you hear it? Do you hear that? That's eternal. What must we do in response to that? No one needs to tell you to go into all the world and preach after you hear that. But most of us have never heard Most lost souls have never heard it, and they don't know the seriousness of their lostness. And then even those of us that have given our lives to Jesus have never heard it, and we don't know the seriousness of a lost world's lostness. What does the Bible say? It's eternal damnation, eternal judgment, vengeance and eternal everlasting fire, shame and everlasting contempt, everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction, Everlasting chains. The smoke of the torment ascends up forever and ever. It's torment day and night forever and ever. It's the wrath of God poured out without mixture, without any deadening agent. And no rest is offered day or night. And there is no break from the horror, from the nightmare, from the pain forever and ever and ever. I know, it seems like a strange meditation. How is this helping me? If you don't see how unapproachable this light is, if you were to see that as your reality, this is literally what we're born into, and you don't recognize the chasm between you and solving that dilemma, then this good news I'm about to introduce you to doesn't quite stand out to you. You see, there is a reason why This is the news that changes the world and men and women have gone into all the earth and suffered great privations, great difficulties, great physical trauma so that they could pass it on. If this really is true, what should we be doing as a result of it? How should we be living in light of it? The miserable hollow of hell. It's forever. It's cut off from light. It's inescapable misery. It's without reprieve, without provision, without sleep, without numbing agents, without a deliverer. Darkness, by its very definition, darkness is not a substance. You can't measure darkness. Darkness is merely the absence of light. 
That's all it is. Light is substance. You can measure light. You cannot measure darkness. It is merely the absence of light. Death is not something you can measure. There's no substance to death. It is merely the absence of something known as life. You see, in this place is no light and no life forever. And that mercy that we so enjoy in our God, that patience, that kindness, that love is absent here. There is no one for all of eternity to show mercy. No one to come down and minister to your pains. What it means to be cut off from God is not something to be taken lightly. I still remember in my office, someone came in and we were having a time to discuss spiritual things. And this person said, I've been thinking about it. All my friends are going to hell and I want to be with my friends. Uh, I don't think you fully understand. I understand. I don't want to be with God. I don't like God. The seriousness of such thoughts caused me to tremble within. The realities of what God has communicated with us. Hey, people, the incinerator is just around the bend and you're in the wrong place. It will be that trash can that is taken out. Unless you're in the house, unless you're in the light, you will be taken out with the trash. And then what should happen in your soul is you should say, but that is unapproachable light. I can't possibly do anything to gain it. And now you're ready to hear. Unless you understand the seriousness of the failure of sin and the fact that you are bearing the nature of something opposite the house, and God has no option. He is a just God. You must be in the place of the trash, in the hollow. He doesn't want you there, though. But to get out of that trash can and into his house is not something you can pull off. This place is lonely and abandoned. It's sealed with a gigantic stone too heavy for you, a dead man, to roll away. And... There's some guards outside that tomb. By the way, they don't let go of their hostages easily. You ever thought about that? You're dead. You have a sealed tomb, and you have guards manning it saying, no one gets out of here. No one takes that body out. You have problems. And yet, they're problems that have some good news. We are dead and in a sealed and guarded grave. Who can save us from this horrible state? Paul is referring to the same thing. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The entire context of Romans 7 could be this. God, no matter if I want to leap into that unapproachable light, it is unapproachable. And there is nothing inside of me that enables me to do that, to make that leap, to somehow get from here to there. Woe is me, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Listen, listen closely. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's almost too good to be true, but mercy triumphs over judgment. There is a rightful judgment. Every single one of us is deserving of it. But the amazing fact of Scripture is though God is perfectly just, 
And though according to his justice, you are cut off, there is a quality in God in his very nature that is superior. And that is that he is merciful. And though we are justly condemned, he is merciful. Justice declares us guilty and that we must be punished. Fact. Mercy declares that he has seen fit to be punished in our place. God never violates his justice. He perfectly fulfills his justice. See, he is perfectly just. But he's also mercy. So to fulfill all justice, he says, punish me instead. Let me take their place in the trash can. We cannot ever reach the unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies. It's too far away, far beyond our ability, our capacity, our know-how to gain. Justice declares that we must share a residence with the prince of the trash can. Whatever his judgment is, it's just, and we share in his penalty. All those that are unrighteous, all those that are unholy, will share in the same just penalty. However, mercy declares that he loves us too much to not reach into that trash can and give us a means of escape. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a fact. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That light of 200 billion galaxies. The wealth, the glory of all of that condescended to leave that light that is unapproachable and to approach us. Took on this humble form and was born as a baby. That unapproachable light has brought that light to us knowing that we could not reach it. He brought it to us. It's called mercy. The gospel the amazing condescension of God. The good news is you can't do it, but he did do it for you. So the grand story, this is quite a story, the revelation of the unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies. That's what the story's about. It's about Jesus. And it says that Jesus created all things. There was nothing made that he didn't create, which means all of that vast creation that we described in the beginning was actually created by one known as Jesus Christ. He didn't just start 2,000 years ago in the womb of Mary. He's God. It says his goings forth are from of old and everlasting. He's God. He's eternal. The great fall from grace. Well, many of us know the story. Genesis 3, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve have done what they ought not. God said, the day in which you eat of this tree, you will surely die. He gave his word. They violated that word through disobedience. And now there's a falling from grace. A falling from that perfect paradise of intimate acquaintance and sharing with God Almighty. They are driven out of the garden. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer do they have access. Try and bust your way through a couple cherubim with flaming swords. You ever studied cherubim? Not ones to be trifled with. As a result, this way is blocked. It's unapproachable. So God begins 
to showcase his mercy. Though we have been cut off, God is a God of mercy. And he desires to prove that, he, that his mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll call it the bewildering bush. That same unapproachable light. Do you remember the one of 200 billion galaxies? The unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies burning in a humble bush. God came and filled a bush. Yeah, God. That's glory. That power. Have you ever studied just the power of the sun? And what we could do on earth with the power of the sun harnessed. and I mean, it's just so mind-boggling. This is the power of billions of suns. It's God. And he condescends to get into a bush and talk to a man. God did that. The creator of the heavens and the earth comes and is a flame of fire. In a humble bush, introduces himself to Moses. Gives him his proper name. And gives him an assignment. The same man he's going to give the law to. Then he said, do not draw near this place, says God to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Unapproachable. Moses, you must learn something from the very beginning. I'm unapproachable light. I know I merely look like a flame of fire in a humble bush right now. But take off your sandals and do not approach. The one who is talking to you is condescending to talk is unapproachable. The tablets of law, the unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies condescending to entrust us his word. The very beginning of the Bible technically would be the finger of God touching tablets of stone. God communes with Moses up on this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and then says, what you've heard, write down in a book as a memorial. And the Bible begins. God had it in his heart to communicate with us. That which is unapproachable, that which is untouchable, came low, humbled himself. He could just destroy us. Instead, he loves us. And he gave us the tablets of stone. He entrusts us his word. And what does that word show us? We have problems. What the law teaches us is not how to approach the light, but that we are not like the light that we have a need. Now that law also within it hides the mystery of one who will come and who will fulfill this law and who will remove the iniquity that this law declares he will remove it in one day. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Let it be known to this entire nation The God who is speaking to you is unapproachable. Do not get near it. Do not touch this mountain on which God is right now. You will die. You see, they needed something to be able to approach God, and they did not have it. The cube of condescension, that's a weird name for it. But God asks Moses, and then he subsequently asks David to build a house. A house in which God will live. Now, I know that sounds very noble, that God could have quite the sanctuary here on earth, and what a neat privilege for God that we would build him a house. However, the one who inhabits the galaxies, the one who inhabits the universe, you know how strange it is that he would say, I'll move in with you. You build a house, it'll look like this. You know where his, what his room was? A 20 cubit by 20 cubit by 20 cubit cube. That's what it was. That's where he moved into. Uh, um, 
What's he preparing us to understand? The condescension of God into man. That temple is a picture of the body of a man. And God is preparing us to understand something. That light, that unapproachable light, the vastness of God has a purpose. The unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies in a 20 cubit by 20 cubit by 20 cubit square box. Almost incomprehensible to the thinking man's mind. That, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would God do that? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. Indeed, it came to pass that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord. Remember those 200 billion galaxies? Filled the house of God. God moved in. He condescended to say, I will move into that little place. What? God? Why would he do that? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. The heavenly man, his name is Jesus, by the way, the unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies in bodily form. That light, that unapproachable light, has come and been conceived of in the womb of a little girl named Mary and was born in the town of Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough. God, almighty God, the unapproachable God, has condescended to take on the form of a servant. For in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the light, all the glory, all the power, all the majesty of 200 billion galaxies in a singular body. Yeah, it should be awe-striking. So let's read a story that Jesus shares, the choice of the rich man. There was a certain rich man, we could call him an American, but we won't do that. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously, I like that word, every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I know, very strange story. But what we seem to be doing is Jesus seems to be giving us some behind-the-scenes pictures here. Things that we don't understand clearly. To the Jews, they understood that Abraham, of course, was the man of faith. Jesus is clarifying something here. That that faith that Abraham had, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe? He believed the promise of the Messiah, that the descendant of Abraham would accomplish. And so as Abraham believed the word of God on the matter, he found that he was given something, a mercy, so that when he died, he didn't go where the ungodly went, but he also wasn't fit to approach the light yet because Jesus Christ had not yet come. So he went to another chamber that we only know as Abraham's bosom. And it seems to be on the other side of some impassable canyon or cavern or chasm between that and Hades. And it 
I mean, according to this story, again, I wasn't there to witness it. All I have is the same text you have. When they're over in Hades, they could see Lazarus over there going, hey, and drinking, you know, some nice water. And, and, and the rich man who had all of the wealth in this life longed for just a, just a drop of water on his tongue. And yet, he couldn't have it. So the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things. I want you to listen very closely. Son, in th- thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, this is the rich man, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that they may testify unto them, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Send him back. Send Lazarus back. Rise him from the dead if necessary. Send him to my brothers and let him know what awaits anyone who has tasted it, even for a moment. Says someone, go back and tell. They don't know up there. They don't understand how serious this is. But what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, there's a lot of ironies in this. I know you may catch them. The fact that one named Lazarus actually did rise from the dead is quite a statement in this, even though this is possibly not talking about the same Lazarus. I mean, that's what I would assume. I don't think he was a beggar outside of the gate of a rich man from any indication. However, it is an interesting parallel. What do they have? They have Moses and the prophets. What do Moses and the prophets speak of? His name's Jesus. So if they will not receive Moses and the prophets, which is the message of Jesus, then even if someone rises from the dead, they will not receive it, which is exactly the case. If you do not receive what God has given as his testimony, saying this is the Messiah, this is who it is, even if that Messiah rises from the dead, they won't receive it. Gaining the whole world versus gaining all of God. So, quick quiz for you here. You can make a choice. There's no right and wrong. Well, there is a right and wrong answer, but I'm not going to you know, grade your, your answer. How about that? You could be the rich man, and you could have it all in this earth. I mean, you could eat and live sumptuously. And you could have it all. You could be popular. Maybe even be a, a leading man or a leading woman in a movie. You know, maybe be a, an actor. Uh, I'm sorry, a singer, and you know, swivel your hips on stage and have young people go, ah! <laughs> There's all sorts of options. Maybe a politician have power and control over masses. Maybe you can be a media mogul and lie to people. Oh, sorry. sorry I, I probably shouldn't have said that. There's all sorts of options. You could have what the rich man had, or you could have difficulty in this life. You could be hated in this life. You could be mistreated in this life. You could have it hard. Your choice. You could say, well, you need to finish what the story is. Okay, all right. 
The rich man has eternal torment, but you can have it all now. Lazarus has eternal comfort in the presence of God. You choose. There actually is a right and a wrong answer, and Jesus is making that very clear. However, most of us, because we live so short-sighted, we only see the rich man's lot, and we look at Lazarus, and we pity him, and we say, oh, I don't want to make decisions that would lead to that. But Jesus has made it very clear that we will have troubles in this life. We will be persecuted if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The life is not easy that we have as Christians. But what we have beyond this temporal passing is so far beyond what anything the rich man has in his temporal satisfactions. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So let's talk about gaining the whole earth. On earth there is fame, applause, pleasure, power, wealth, travel, exotic foods, exotic people, entertainment, the latest gadgets, and the most technologically advanced means of serving yourself. All for the taking. Welcome to America. We have more of a bait for this than maybe any culture in the history of the world. Did you know that most of us in here, if not every single one of us in here, is more wealthy in the fact that I think it was something like if you even have a TV than 99.9% of the rest of the human race that has ever lived before us. You want to talk about someone who would be called a rich man. I think we may fit the bill. We're vulnerable here. Comparing earth with the heavens, the realm of unapproachable light. So if we were to compare and just do a direct compare contrast with diddly squat earth and the heavenlies. In light of the expanse of the entire universe and God's creation, earth is but a speck, a pebble. You want to choose the speck and the pebble? Because you gain the whole earth and you still lose it for all eternity. But if you give up this earth, you give up the speck and the pebble, I know it's hard. For whatever reason, it's really hard to give up that speck and pebble, isn't it? But when you relinquish it and say, God, my treasure is in those 200 billion galaxies with you. I choose to give up my short life here for my eternal one with you. Gaining the heavens. In heaven there is Jesus forever and always. There is the intimate and personal love of the Redeemer, the joy of the Lord, peace that passes all understanding, the boundless creativity of the Creator Himself, and the sheer vastness of the sovereign God. Doesn't that sound amazing? I used to dream about heaven. Not just dream, talk about heaven all the time. My mom would sit me down. My number one avenue was my mind, and I wanted to know Jesus just because I wanted to know heaven. That was my first motivation, not necessarily the best motivation, but it was interesting how that had an impact on my life. Can I fly in heaven? My mom would say, maybe. Am I fly in heaven? Can I have unlimited amounts of white drawing paper? Because <laughs> like, we were always running out of white drawing paper, obviously. Man, I could like, draw all the time. And like, can I breathe underwater? Are there caves underwater that I could swim and then like explore? Maybe. Oh, imagine the creator of the universe is the one in charge. And he has boundless creativity far beyond what Eric Ludi could come up with. I remember thinking that if, if taste down here, like I would think of the most tasty thing down here on earth, and then put it on a grade or a scale, like that's a one on a measure to a thousand. And in heaven, I take something, a fruit from a tree, just like something I wouldn't even like down here, and it's like tastes a thousand times, a million times better than even the best tasting thing down here. A new creation, a new body. What would the taste buds be like? How would I see? How would I feel? Oh, my mind goes berserk. 
and I'm not even close. Whatever I can think or imagine still falls far short of being with God, knowing him, sharing in life with him. Could you imagine, have you ever been in any type of singing situation like where the, the acoustics are perfect and people know parts in a harmony? And it's just like, it melts you into it. And you just, you feel what you would call a taste of heaven. Can you imagine what it would be like to be surrounded by tens of thousands upon tens of thousands? And all of us have good voices. <laughs> and somehow we know harmony, even though no one in the church knows it anymore. Somehow. So how do we gain the heavens? How do we approach that which is unapproachable? The story of two hollows. You must choose your cave. It's interesting. But if you don't choose a cave in this world right now, a Lazarus sort of decision, I choose the harder way. If you don't choose to identify with Jesus and enter into that hollow, that tomb, come to your death and to give up the life you know, then you have another hollow that awaits you. You have to choose which hollow you will enter. Either you enter into death now or you experience death for all eternity. You must choose your cave. So in scripture, we have two caves. Now, I'm, this is even outside of the tomb, which is quite an amazing picture of a cave. The cave of hell, or Hades, or the cave Adullam. You see, I, I had a whole message called the cave of Adullam with the students, so they're familiar with this. But this is where David, during the season of being hunted by Saul, where he hid. And that's a picture of where we're at. You see, David was going to come into his kingdom just like Jesus will come into his kingdom. His feet will come down from the heavens and rest upon the Mount of Olives. It will divide asunder. He will sit and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fact. But we're in the season that though he is king, just like David was anointed king, though he is rightfully king, the world has not bent its knee. They have not yet acknowledged him as such and that is called the season of the caves where David and anyone that identified with him, think of his mighty men, they lived in caves, very specifically the cave of Adullam. To escape the cave of torment later, we must choose the cave of suffering now. It's not very easy to live in a cave. It's a lot easier to live in a palace and be one of Saul's buddies. But to identify with the true king of Israel, David, the one that's rightfully anointed by the prophet Samuel, the one in whom the Holy Spirit has come and lived, the one who defeated our great enemy Goliath, he has done it. Why would we not show him honor? He has destroyed the devil, crushed his head. Why would we not show honor to Jesus Christ? You make a choice. You side with Jesus now. You side against the kingdoms of this earth. You actually will be in a season of persecution. And you will live in a cave. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him, and everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. We could say it this way. Everyone who recognizes that they have a problem and they're living in the trash can. Everyone that recognizes that to get out of this trash can and get back into the house is an impossibility. They all come down to the cave. And they say, there's only one way. We only have one Savior. O Son of David, rescue us. Enter in the cave with our beloved. David's name actually comes from the, the Hebrew word for love. So you stick a dust sound on the front end and a dust sound on the end. So it's duh, 
Ahava d. So ahava means love. D ahavad. You hear that? So if this was a Sesame Street thing, we go d ahava d. D ahava d. David. David. See? I just taught you some Hebrew right there. Enter in the cave with our beloved. Where is he? I want to be where my beloved is. I want to be where Jesus is. Do you know what he did for me? Where does he dwell? Well, he's in, he's in the cave. He has a rock for his pillow. He is hunted by this world. The world hates him and despises him. I want to be where he is. Do you know what it will cost you? Do you recognize that to side with Jesus now means you have to forsake comforts in this life? Do you recognize that it means that the honors of this earth will not be bequeathed to you? Do you know that the applause of this world will not go in your direction? Do you recognize what this could mean? Do you recognize that it could mean imprisonment, suffering, torture, death? Where's my beloved? I want to know where he is. That's where I want to go. Adulam, pretty amazing thing. It means in the Hebrew, justice for the people. What has God created us, created for us? An adulam, a cave. And when we believe in him, we share in his just working on our behalf. And as a result, we're able to receive the mercy that's in that cave because he is the justice for us. God is just. He will always be just. He cannot be anything but just. And you're deserving of eternal hellfire, eternal separation from him. But he is mercy, and his mercy triumphs over his judgment. Therefore, he has made a way for us, and he calls us into himself to enter inside of him, the suffering man. And when by faith we do, that suffering man, that cave of redemption, is justice for us. And as a result, the justness of God. Have you ever heard the justified? The just shall live by faith. We enter into that cave of suffering now to identify with Jesus and the justice that we need. The perfect righteous covering is given us. And that's the means by which the unapproachable is approached because there is only one who can pass that gulf. There is only one that can get from this earth into that heavenly realm. And that's the one that created that heavenly realm in the first place. That one who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly humble, perfectly loving, and perfectly merciful. And his judgment has been exceeded by his mercy. And he has not left us in the trash can, but has made a way for us. What leads a man to live in a cave? It's a rather strange thing to do when there's a palace down the street. What leads a man to give up fame and popularity? That's a strange thing to do when applause is right down the street. What leads a man to go to a prison cell and suffer extreme torment when there's a nice bed and breakfast down the street? Why would we choose difficulty instead of pampering? Why would we choose hardship purposely? We go where our beloved is. What leads a man to live in a cave? It's not the cave. It's not the hardships that we are attracted to. It's not prison. It's not torture. It's not crosses. That doesn't attract us any more than it attracts anyone else. It's where our beloved is. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. 
He is fairer than the children of men. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the bridegroom. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley. He's a bundle of myrrh. He's a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and my friend. Even if heaven were a dark cave, if that were where our fair king lives, then let us go to the cave. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is an amazing meditation. Our place, this earth, this trash can, it used to be a paradise. It used to be a garden of Eden. And yet now it has become a place that though it still bears a shadowy resemblance to its original form, it has lost life. It has lost the presence of God. And so here we dwell in a domain of darkness, in a domain of sin, where sin rules and the prince of the power of the air controls and we are bond slaves unto sin. But he has made our place his place. And he condescended from his high and holy hill of 200 billion galaxies. The one who created it all, who is over all, who holds it all in the hollow of his hand. He condescended to join us. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitants of Marishah. The glory of Israel shall come to the cave. The glory of Israel shall come, and he shall have justice for the people. Now here's, okay, if you thought that was amazing, that the, the one who possesses eternity, the heavenlies, would condescend to come low to this earth. Just imagine this that he wants to make his place our place. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us, which means made alive, us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, when we choose to enter into Christ, that cave of suffering, it's a vehicle. It's a way to the Father. And he somehow can pass that chasm of 2.5 million light years and bring us into the dwelling place of God, which is by definition unapproachable. It's unapproachable. And yet, that's where we live. We live in unapproachable light. How? In Christ Jesus. In the cave of suffering. We enter into that cave of Jesus Christ, his open wounds. We believe and we say, you did this for me. This is justice for me. You carried the just penalty and therefore I enjoy your righteous covering. And that hollow, that place of suffering becomes our life. That tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away and we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The astounding twist Oh, this is good. This is good. The unapproachable light, glory, power, and majesty of 200 billion galaxies is now in us. He like, he like filled a bush, a 20 cubit by 20 cubit box, a man known as Jesus Christ. And he says, and you're his body now. I choose you as my dwelling place. I choose your life. 
But God, you are unapproachable light. I am unworthy, unfit. I have made you fit in my son. He was the justice for you. Therefore, he has satisfied that debt that you owed. He has paid the ransom. He has done the work. And therefore, you have been fitted and made right to be inhabited by the unapproachable light itself. So if I were you, I would remove your sandals and recognize that that which is moved inside of you is holy, holy, holy. And it should forever alter the way you live. If you know that this is his chosen vehicle to carry the divine revelation of his good news, then you handle your body differently. Every thought, every movement, every action of this carrying device becomes sacred. Do you not know, says Paul, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The unapproachable light has seen fit to make you lights, shining stars in a darkened generation so that that which is unapproachable and has always been distant, can be brought near, not just through the body of Jesus Christ in past tense 2,000 years ago, but through the body of Christ, us, the believers, we're carrying devices of this unapproachable light and the message that creates the bridge from lost humanity to the inheritance of life. We are that carrying device. This message is merely a sketch of something that I fall far short of being able to properly describe. The awesome wonder that is our God. I cannot imagine what it is going to be like when we actually do understand all of this fully and do not need to speak in metaphors and pictures. But he is worthy of our lives. And I would ask you today to consider trading out the things of this world for the things of heaven being willing to let go of the life that you have known in the flesh to enjoy the life that you can know in the spirit of grace. It is worth it. Your little pebbles in exchange for his vast inheritance, which is impossible to measure, but for the sake of using our metaphor that we've done today, would measure and span similar to maybe 200 billion galaxies. That is how vast it is. And it is worthy of us giving up everything we possess to gain it. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.